five, ten years. And I love get some brownie guy. points. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And you've got all your teachers in the town hall. What yeah. are your demands? All the teachers are in the town hall. Yeah. Stay there. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> oh, good morning, church. What a fine-looking bunch you are. What an awesome church we have here. Would you agree? Yes. Absolutely. Wonderful worship, uh, Carl. Uh, really, really good. Really good. The presence of God is tangible in the room. That is for sure. You know, Seb, you, you shared, I think it might have been impromptuously, um, you talked about um, David just a couple of minutes ago. And... Um, I was reminded, I was reminded something about, about David in, in terms of um, uh, we can either be fearful or faithful. And if you take that just very quickly before we get into the message, and while I'm doing this, can you turn to Matthew chapter 5, please? Matthew 5, verses 17 to 48, and I'll come to you in a minute. The incredible thing about David, when he stood on one side of the valley and looked across and Goliath and the, and the uh, Philistines were on the other side and Goliath was huge. I mean, this guy was 10 feet tall. He was a big man and um, swords and spears and, and he probably, had, anyone that came before him, he would have just wiped them out. He was huge. And the whole of the Israelite army, including the king, were hiding in their tents, hiding behind rocks and behind trees and afraid of this one man just, even though he was huge, just one man. So David, this boy, and they reckon he was probably only about 13, maybe 14 years of age at the time. So he's just a lad. Yeah. So David, without any armor whatsoever, because Saul said, here, take my armor. And David said, it's too heavy for me. I can't wear this. That's too big anyway. <laughs> um, bad fit. Um, so he stands there, and behind him is the entire Israelite army. Have you got the picture? These are the fighting soldiers of Israel, including the king. And he's behind them, hiding in the tent. And David's standing there, and David's looking at Goliath. And the entire Israelite army are looking at Goliath as well. And they all saw the same thing. But they didn't see the same thing. And you know what the difference was? David saw Goliath through the eyes of faith. The Israelite army saw him through the eyes of fear. And that's what made the difference. So what are you seeing this morning? In terms of your life, in terms of your future, in terms of your journey. What are you looking at? What's around the corner tomorrow? I have no idea. Every day will take care of itself. But if I wake up tomorrow morning and I look at my day, my week, if I look at it through the eyes of fear, I'm done. My week is over before I start. Are you with me, church? What's the difference? We need to look at life through the eyes of faith, not the eyes of fear. You know the incredible thing about that story is when David saw Goliath through the eyes of faith, this 10-foot-tall giant just became like an ordinary man. And the rest is history. We know what he did. Do you remember what he did to Goliath? Come on, someone. What did he do? He what? He cut his head off. He faced the enemy and he decapitated him. 
And we can do that too in the spirit, by the way. Okay. Great to see you here this morning. If you're visiting here with us, uh, my name is Paul Edlin. I'm one of the leadership team here. And it's a pleasure to bring the word this morning. You may remember that um, a few weeks ago, Robert was preaching a message um, out of Matthew 5, uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I think we're doing, we're doing a series on that. And Robert I was preaching uh, verses 1 to 14. So he chose all the best parts of, of the Sermon on the Mount and he left me with the rest. Gee, thanks, mate. Thank you for nothing. Somehow I've got to make some sense out of the rest of it. Let's have a go. Anyway, it's already good. But before we dive into verses 17 to 48, let's recall, before we do that, let's recall the context that occasioned uh, Jesus' very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's important we understand the context. When I was at Bible college, one of the um, principles that our Bible college lecturers rammed home almost on a daily basis was the text, that is the Word of God, the text, if it's taken out of context, becomes pretext. And it's important that we understand the context so that when we apply the principle out of that particular um, passage, we are applying it correctly today. Otherwise, we can end up misapplying it. So the context is worth noting. It's worth noting, firstly, that the Sermon on on the Mount was not addressed to unbelievers. It was addressed to his, his disciples and his followers. In other words, it was addressed to the church. So therefore, what does that mean for us today? It's addressed to us. Absolutely. And the second thing to remember, if we're looking at context, at the time that Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, there were four uh, primary religious groups who were operating at that time. There were, of course, our friends the Pharisees. And then there were the Sadducees. And by the way, do you know why they were called the Sadducees? Because they were sad, you see. Oh, you should have known that one. That's an old one. Then there were the Essenes. And the Essenes were an interesting crowd because they denied the resurrection. uh, And they refused to immerse themselves in public life. Um, And then there there were also the Zealots. And I think that Barabbas was probably part of the Zealots group because they were a political group who, were, who wanted to um, wipe out the Roman occupation and kill them, take them out. So that, that, that's the Zealots. So you've got these four religious groups that are operating at the day, uh, that day. Now here you have four belief systems, each of them claiming that they had the truth. Are you with me? They're all claiming the same thing. You realize how confusing that must have been for the general population. Must have been very, very confusing for them. Four groups, all claiming divine revelation and that their teachings were the truth. That's the context that occasioned the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, it was probably his first sermon. He preached five during his time. This is likely the first one. And of course, anyone been to Israel? Yep, there's a few of us. So the Sermon on the Mount, when he, it, it, he wasn't kind of like on Mount Cook. It wasn't like that, you know, talking down to all these people way down there. Over there, a mountain, is, we, we would just, just a little wee, that's it. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and so it's not like in New Zealand here. 
And so when he was doing his thing, he got into a place where everyone could see him. We don't know how many people were there, probably hundreds, thousands of them, maybe, who knows. But he was in a place where his voice could carry and, and um, uh, what do you call it when sound, what do you call it, sound through the room? Acoustically, everyone could hear what he was saying. He turns up, Jesus does, remember the context, remember the four groups of people all claiming to have the truth and that everyone should follow them. You with me? Then Jesus turns up and he claims that he's actually the way. He is the truth and he is the life and more than that, and no one, absolutely no one comes to the Father but through him. Imagine how well that went down. Not very well at all. No wonder they planned about from that point to kill him. And Jesus begins, and I paraphrase this, Hey, you Pharisees. Hey, you Sadducees. Hey, you Essenes and you Zealots. You have heard it said. But I say, da, 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 da. That's the context, and that's what was going on. And with that, he declares that his coming has ushered in a kingdom that's shaped by a different set of values, a different set of standards, and a different set of priorities. And that in God's kingdoms, kingdom, that, those values, those standards, those principles, they are what determine how we now shall live. Hello, church. Good morning. How we now shall live live. Let's read verses 17 to 20. As they form the scaffold around uh, verses 21 to 48, which I'm not going to read, but I will try to unpack in the rest of the message. Is that okay? I'm not going to read right up to 48. We'll be here till Jesus returns. We just want verses 17 to 20. They form the scaffold. Here we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Please hold on to that thought. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Hold on to that thought. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Hold on to that thought. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least into the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I looked up that word not in the original Greek, you know what I found? It means not. It's what he said. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the people of Israel had received a set of laws through Moses, which Jesus has just affirmed. He said, I'm not coming to do away with the law. Not at all. He in no way diminished the law of Moses as some people believed. He did not. See, when you read it in its context, and remember, context is really, really important. When you read it in context, what Jesus did was he took 
the original law of Moses and, and, and rather than doing away with it, he actually intensified the law of Moses in his sermon. And he did so by challenging the religious leaders, their outward application of the law and added to it, listen to this, this is so important. He challenged the outward appearance, the outward application of the law. We'll get to that in a second. But he added to it the inward dimension that focuses on the, everyone say heart, my heart, your heart. Jesus added that component, and church, that changed everything. Absolutely changed everything in an instant. Listen to it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce but I tell you again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago do not break your oath but I say you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth but I say Finally, number six, he did six of them. They're called antitheses. The, the six antitheses, got to get that to tongue twister. Finally, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you. So what's going on here? Let's pray. Father, we know that it is your word that changes life. We know that it is your word that changes, can change times and seasons, can even make the sun stand still for half an hour. We know that it is your word that created something out of nothing. We know that your word has power to transform. And this morning, my prayer, God, is that your word will transform us from the inside out. And everyone said. You recall from Robert's message a few weeks ago, Opening verses, chapter 5, where Jesus lists eight, well, they call the Beatitudes, they're, they're blessings. That's what Beatitude means. So eight, eight, eight blessings. Oh, let me just uh, refresh your memory very quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You realize what's going on here? Apparently, according to the, the, the Beatitude, if you're poor in spirit, you're blessed. Well, that's what it says. If you're poor in, if, if, um, blessed are those who mourn. So if you're mourning, you're blessed. If you're a meek person, apparently you're blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Seb, did you jump off the stage here this morning? Did I see you literally jump off the stage? Can a 65-year-old do that too? All right, let's give it a go. (laughs) Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. These eight blessings were, can you see it? They were in stark contrast to what the people had already been taught by the Pharisees, the scribes, the zealots, the Essenes, in total contrast to what they'd been told. Sadducees, Essenes, and and, and the zealots had been telling people, actually, you're not blessed if you're poor in spirit. Now, here's the point. Given, Brenda, given. That all of those four people, those four groups of people, they all had the law of Moses. They all had it. They had copies of it. They all understood what it said. 
They had possession of the original written law. That's the law that God downloaded to Moses when he went up on the mountain. You remember the story? So given that they all had possession of the original written law, why was there such a discrepancy between what Jesus was saying and what they were claiming? It's a good question, isn't it? And the answer is found in Exodus 19 and 20. I'll just give you a precy of it. You recall that the Israelites had arrived at Mount Sinai. Has anyone been there, by the way? Yeah, you have. Is it a real mountain? Is it like, like a New Zealand mountain or is it a little, little thingy? It's a big mountain. Did you climb it? Did you meet God up there? It was spectacular. Wonderful. So they're in Mount Sinai. It was there that God revealed the Ten Commandments to them, just giving you the backdrop. Afterwards, Moses himself goes up onto Mount Sinai. God, for 40 days, 40 nights, God downloaded the law to, uh, to him. And he came down with the, with the Ten Commandments carved in two tablets of stone. You remember the story? So that, 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 that's what was going on here. Uh, and, and he also, with the law, explained to the Jewish people, the nation, uh, where, uh, how to conduct themselves in worship, uh, in relationship to other nations, and how they were to conduct themselves essentially in the natural, normal rhythms of life, just the day-to-day -day rhythms of life. Um, the first five books of the law, come out of the law, the first five books have all the law in it. Sorry again. You get, in the Old Testament, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's the law is encompassed in all of that stuff there. Fast forward now to Jesus turning up in Jerusalem and facing these four groups of people. So fast forward all of those years, how many years that was? 3,000 years or something like that. When God gave Moses the law, can anyone remember how many laws he actually gave Moses up on the mountain? It is a number. 613. They were 613 commandments or the law given by God to Moses to then recite to the people, write them all down, this is how you now shall live. Got that? But over the years, the Pharisees and the scribes, they started adding a whole bunch of other laws to the law. Now, I can understand, you know, the Pharisees get a bit of a bad rap, actually. Um, you know, we do, we kind of look down on them and and we call them, you know, religious zealots and all the rest of that stuff. And that's true. But I think they also get a bit of a bad rap because when it came to their desire to do exactly what God wanted them to do, 10 out of 10. Seriously. I mean, they did not want to violate the law at any point. They were so afraid of doing that. You see the difference? They're looking at it through the eyes of fear rather than the eyes of faith. Hello, someone. And in their desire, their fervency, which I give them 10 out of 10 for, they wanted to do the right thing. They added a whole bunch of other conditions. They reckon, so you get your original 613, they reckon by, by the time the Pharisees, the teachers of the Lord, finished, there were some 1,100 that they, the people had to jump through all these hoops just to get on with life. I mean, that must have been 
horrendous trying to live like that. And these became known as oral laws or oral statutes um, uh, and legal interpretations that were not included in the first five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which the law makes up. They weren't included in there. This is such an important point to understand. We know, for example, that the Pharisees in particular revered the law. They revered the Torah. But they claimed that the oral traditions that they were, they were putting in there were part of the original, which they, weren't, which they were not. Now, let me give you an example. Jesus says in verses 43, if you look in your Bible, in verses 44, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Here's a question. I think this is the question. How then could an unchanging God of love command us to hate our enemies? Ask yourself that question. How could he do that? You see, as the unchanging God of love, he cannot hate any person nor can he command anyone else to do so. That's the God we serve. Clearly something wasn't adding up here. Now watch this. The Pharisees were teaching the law all right by quoting from Leviticus 17 and 18, which says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your, neighbors as your, love your neighbor as yourself. But they then added, and hate your enemy. It wasn't in the original 613 laws. Do you, are you with me? And this is what had been going on for centuries. All the oral traditions which were coming in to the original law that God had placed there. And do you know why God gave Israel the law? Not to hurt them, but to help them. It wasn't to curse them, it was to bless them. It was to help them live life well according to his statutes, according to his principles, according to his values. It wasn't there to trip them up and, and so that they'd make a mistake and he could condemn them, not in the least. It was there to add value to them as a nation, as a people, as a society. It was actually there to bless them. That's why the law was given. And when Jesus turned up, he said, I am not changing one iota of the law, but let me tell you what directs and drives the law, it's what's in your heart. And about that point, the Pharisees probably said to themselves, he's got to go. That didn't go down very, very well at all. He's got to go. You see, they added and hate your enemy. Jesus was pointing out their obvious error. Notice, Jesus does not say in any way, does not contradict the law of Moses in his Sermon on the Mount. He was drawing a distinction between what they actually said, the law that is, and what the oral traditions had added, which was not in the original 613 laws. How do we know that? Well, it's simple. Jesus did not begin his six antitheses with it is written 
as he often did when he quoted the Old Testament. Every time he quoted the Old Testament, he said, it is written. Remember, Satan, when he had that corridor with Satan, Satan tried to tempt it four times, and, and Jesus said, it is written. He didn't say, you have heard. He said, it is written. So when Jesus raised the issues of murder, divorce, adultery, oaths, eye for an eye, loving your neighbor and hating your enemy, he began instead, you have heard. He wasn't quoting the law. He was quoting the oral traditions that they had added to the law. You see, if it was written in the law of Moses, then it was from God and Jesus would not. In fact, Jesus could not declare anything contrary to the will of his Father. Do you agree? John 5.30 says this, I can do nothing on my own. Let me just get back to my point. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him, God, who sent me. You know, one of the reasons for Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount was to draw a distinction between the written word of God, which is God's unchangeable word, consistent word, and that's true today, between that and what they had heard, which was not part of of the original 1613 laws given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It it was, in essence, simply man's opinion. Which segues into my final point, which is probably the main point. Everyone okay? Everyone nice and warm? It's lovely and warm in this place, isn't it? It's just that, um, yeah, I can do this. Can I do this? Good. One of our previous churches that we passed, and there's only two, so you figure it out. Um, they has a huge auditorium, has huge auditorium, kind of, uh, about two-thirds the size of this. <laughs> Excuse me. Darling, you'll remember this. And, and on wintertime, they had, this, they had a, gas, a gas heater, Right at the top, way up the top of the roof, and there was, there was a, um, um, a grill over this, this um, ducting about, about that size. And the heat would come out of that and heat this huge auditorium. And it would take about three days to heat up. Well, it seemed like that to me. It was always freezing, wasn't it? Until I said, why don't we put some heat pumps in? That was a good idea, and that's what we did, and fixed the problem. So... The whole heat thing is a big deal to me. So I love, love what you've done here. When I first came into this auditorium a few weeks ago, I walked around and counted them. There's eight, by the way. I just counted them. <laughs> it's a great heating system. It's wonderful. Here's my main point. You know, I've often thought that verses 17 to 20, which we read earlier, is the main point of the, the entire sermon on the mount, and I still believe that, especially verse 20, which says this. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I actually think that that one verse there, particularly that that passage, is actually the undergirding principle right through the entire sermon. Unless your righteousness, Paul, 
surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, I said this earlier. Jesus didn't do away with anything from the law. Not one thing. He actually intensified it. Because he's saying to the Pharisees, see, you know, you think your righteousness is, is worthy. No, it's not. You actually need to, need to actually lift your game. Unless it surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You know, one thing that stands out in his Sermon on the Mount is this. Each issue that Jesus identified are all external manifestations of the more important point, which is this. What is going on in your internal world matters a whole lot. What's going on internally is what actually drives you. The Pharisees were more concerned with their outward appearance, their external qualities. And that has some value, by the way. You know, um, it does have some value. I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, present well. I'm not saying that at all. I think we should. But they were so fixated on the outward appearance. How, how well do I look in the marketplace? How many people come in in their day, because they were revered, how many people come and um, kneel down before them and kiss their hand as they, they walk through the marketplaces, those kinds of things. Whereabouts were they sitting when there was a feast? Were they sitting up the front? Or were they sitting up the back? That kind of thing. External stuff. Outward appearance. And you know what, church? Let me take a risk here. If we're going to be really, really honest with ourselves, we can do the same too, can't we? We can be like that. Jesus challenged that and he challenged them and he said, what matters most is not how we look externally, but what goes on internally. He said that true righteousness, before it is anything, is an issue of the heart. It's an internal thing, not an external thing. See, our heart church, at that heart level that the Bible calls the seat of our emotions, what goes on in our heart is what we really think. What goes on at the heart level is what we really feel. What goes on deep down inside in my heart level, that's what I really believe. Our heart, church, is the source of everything else that we do. The condition of our heart. The things that we do spring from the condition of our heart. Which is why Solomon said in Proverbs 4.23, he said this, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everyone smile. That's true for me, and it's true for you. Again, the Pharisees were more concerned with their outward appearance, the external qualities. And to be fair, I just said that before, there is a place for that. 
I'm not diminishing that. I mean, I like to dress well. I mean, I might look pretty average this morning, but come on, church. I like to dress well. I do. And I'm sure that you do too. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I think how we present ourselves is important. How we present ourselves verbally is important as well. First impressions count. But if you're the kind of person that's trying to live your life as you want to be, and not being honest about who you are right now, you're going to fall flat on your face at some point. You're going to be exposed. You see, because from God's perspective, He knows exactly who you are. You might be able to fool me, and I might be able to fool you, perhaps for a period of time. But you know what, Anna? God sees, and I cannot fool him. Carl, can you bring the team up, please? Let me just land it with this. Later on in chapter 23 of Matthew, um, Jesus had a, uh, another run-in with the Pharisees, which was kind of common <laughs> for him and the Pharisees. And this was his response. This happened after, after they'd heard the Sermon on the Mount, after they'd heard all of this stuff. You know, it's not about the outward appearances, it's about what goes on in here. After they heard all of that stuff, still they continued to reject his message. Still they continued to believe that they had the answers and he didn't. So we're now in chapter 23 of, um, of Matthew, and he says this, Jesus to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Here's the point. Here's the point. Church, we need to be honest about who we really are. Um, I might fool you for a season, but I'll never fool God. True? I can never fool God. He sees me. He sees me in my dark moments. And he sees me when I shine and everything in between. We cannot fool the master. And we serve a God who promises us in John 10.10, a full and overflowing life. John 10.10, one of my most favorite scriptures in the New Testament, says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, abundance, to the max. You know, when I, as a new Christian... And as a new Christian, when I, when I read that verse, it's one of those verses, you know, some verses in the Bible, um, uh, and they just jump out at you. You might have read them a thousand times, but this particular day just kind of just jumps out at the page at you. Well, this is one for me. That they may have life and have it to the full. And I originally thought, what's your name, young lady? 
Tegan. 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 I originally thought Tegan that he's talking about eternal life. Until I went and I dug a bit deeper as Anna was encouraging the church a few weeks ago with her three-part series about getting into the Word of God. And I realized that it's not just about my future, that God wants me to have life to the full. It's life on earth, right here, right now, today. It's not just eternity. Look, eternity is going to be incredible, but I don't want to go there yet. I'm still living here, and I want to make the most of what God is doing here. Now, are you with me, church? We want to make the most of our life, live it to the full. Um, uh, Jeanette, you were praying for, and Seb, you mentioned it too, um, Jenny Perkis. Um, And we too know them as well, Graham and Jenny. She's with the Lord now. She's lived a full and productive life. She's with the Lord now. She's enjoying the fruit of her reward. But while she was on earth, and you would know this church, did she not proclaim the name of Jesus with every breath that she had? Did she not glorify God in her life? Yes, she did. And so to us. Life, not just in eternity, but life to the full here on earth in this time. The thief, who is the false shepherd, cares only about feeding himself and not building up the flock. He steals sheep in order to kill them, to destroy the flock. But Jesus has come to benefit the sheep. He gives life, which is not constrained or constricted, but life that is overflowing to the full. That's what Jesus does. So here's my question to you. With all that in mind, do we normally finish church right on time? You have heard that it was said, but I say this morning, we'll just go a couple of minutes over. Is that okay? Please bow your heads. And I'm I'm asking you to do that, not because it's a formula, it's not. But what it can do is just it's just you and the Holy Spirit right now. This is your space with God right there with you. You're not looking at anyone else, no distractions. Just you and the Holy Spirit. Focus right now, if you if you would please. In your heart and your mind, both left and right brain, focus on the Holy Spirit. Say, welcome, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your presence around me right now. Thank you that you are here with me now. And here's my question. What has the thief robbed from you? What has he taken from you that he does not have any right, any legal ground to take and to have? What has he done in your life that you want to turn around and walk away from and start a new life? What restrictions has he put on you? What chains bind you? Not because you want them to, but because of what he has done and is doing. Because that's what he does. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. 
You're not going to get this fullness of life by following what the enemy is speaking into your spirit and what he has done to you. You've got to cut it off and allow the Holy Spirit to come in and renew and begin to give you life and life to the full. So I'm going to pray a prayer. We are not... um, you can, you can open your eyes, you can look back up. I want to pray a prayer over us, and then the team will go, thank you for just carrying this, lovely, just awesome what you're doing. The team will lead us into a song at some point. That's an opportunity for us to gather around you and pray for you. Um, if you choose to come down the front, that is perfectly fine, because it's logistically easier. But if you don't want to come down the front, then get someone next to you that you trust, whose word you trust, someone you have confidence in. Um, to pray for you as well. But what I'd like you to do, whatever the Holy Spirit revealed to you uh, while you had your head bowed and your eyes closed, then get someone to pray for you for that issue or those issues. Please do that. Don't leave here today the same way as you walked in. Yeah? Let God do what only God can do. Fresh start, new beginning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, well, we'd love to talk to you about that as well. So just let, uh, let someone know and we can help in that regard as well. So if you'd like prayer for anything, uh, the team are going to play in a few seconds. Um, just wander down the front. We've got a bunch of people that will pray with you and for you. But again, if that's not you and you want to be prayed, you stay in your seat. Just tap someone on the shoulder and they can come and pray with you. Please stand. Thanks, Carl. So don't, don't hold back, church. Just, just wander down or get someone to pray for you. We would love to do that. Who else would rocks cry out to worship? Whose glory taught the stars to shine? Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing. But this joy is mine. Who else would Ross cry out to worship? Whose glory taught the stars to shine. Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing. But this joy is mine. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. Who else would die for our redemption? 
whose resurrection means our rise. There isn't time enough to sing of all you've done, but I have eternity to try. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand with a thousand hallelujahs we magnify your name you alone deserve the glory the honor and the praise lord jesus this song is forever yours a thousand hallelujahs 